0: Hello and welcome to episode 29 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. Firstly, a big thank you for the positive reviews on iTunes this week and especially to my four new supporters on Patreon. That's Benjamin Sutton, Carrie, Nama Shang, and Joan Prentice. I really appreciate your support and I hope you enjoy all the bonus features of supporting this show at Patreon. In today's episode, we head to Aberdeen on the northeast coast of Scotland. Aberdeen is Scotland's third largest city with a population of just under 200,000 and it's around about a two and a half hour drive to Edinburgh or a nine hour drive to London, although with the state of our roads, make that more like nine days. We're heading back to February 2005, so for some of you, the best part of the podcast, let's start off looking at the music popular at this time. The UK pop charts were topped by Enrique Iglesias with Hero, which, I hate to say, a few years ago was a secret guilty pleasure in my music library along with my erasure albums until discovered by my wife and I faced an ongoing campaign of ridicule until it was deleted. In the US, number one was Let Me Love You by Mario. The Super Bowl this month saw Indianapolis Colts beat Chicago Bears 29-17 and Kevin Harvick won the Daytona 500. In the UK... Robert Kilroy Silk, remember him? Officially launched a Veritas political party on an anti-immigration platform after quitting UKIP following a failed leadership bid. Now, if you are not familiar with this man, check him out just to admire his year-round tan, if nothing else. London's mayor, Ken Livingstone, was censured by the London Assembly for comparing a Jewish journalist for the Evening Standard to a concentration camp guard. Livingstone refused to withdraw his comments. And as you probably know, earlier this year, he was suspended from the Labour Party membership, accused of bringing the party into disrepute, following a BBC Radio London interview, in which he claimed that Adolf Hitler was, quote, "...supporting Zionism before he went mad and ended up killing six million Jews." Close quotes. Sometimes you just don't know quite what to say, do you? So on to today's case. Have you been to Aberdeen? It's the powerhouse of northeast Scotland, fuelled by the North Sea petroleum industry. Oil money has made the cities expensive as London and Edinburgh and there are hotels, restaurants and clubs with prices to match the depth of oil-wealthy pockets. Fortunately, if you do visit, most of the cultural attractions such as the Excellent Maritime Museum and the Aberdeen Art Gallery, they're free of charge. Known throughout Scotland as the Granite City, Much of the town was built using silvery grey granite hewn from the now-abandoned Rubislaw Quarry, at one time the biggest artificial hole in the ground in Europe. On a sunny day, the granite lends an attractive glitter to the city. But when low grey rain clouds scudding off the North Sea, it can be hard to tell where the buildings stop and the sky begins. On a nice day, it's a perfect location. With Royal Deeside easily accessible to the west, Donatar Castle to the south, sandy beaches with great surf to the north, dress up warmly, and whiskey country to the northwest. Although at this time the oil industry is struggling as having a difficult time, the particular economic and social circumstances in Aberdeen, with the wealth generated from the oil industry and the high number of men who work within it, with many based in Aberdeen for long periods of time, have led to it being a very popular place for prostitution. Even with the oil downturn, in 2017 a Scottish government report found more brothels in Aberdeen than any other Scottish city. This publication revealed that northeast police and support agencies saw higher scale of prostitution in the region in line with increased demand due to the oil industry in Aberdeen and large events and conferences such as offshore Europe. Supported by information gathered by the police-led Operation Begonia and interviews with groups such as Alcohol and Drugs Action. This report reveals that the majority of prostitutes operating on Aberdeen's streets were local women, with the majority being white and Scottish. It also cites a definite decline in on-street prostitution. This decline is almost certainly down to the relatively new laws introduced in 2007, which scrapped the zone of tolerance for street prostitution that had previously been in place since July 2001. As you can imagine, this tolerance zone was very controversial and some strong feelings on both sides. This zone, which was based around the city's harbour, saw police turn a blind eye to prostitutes and their clients. Around 130 prostitutes had been using the zone since its introduction, but the new curb crawling laws saw this zone and a similar one in the Edinburgh Docks District of Leith scrapped. When the zone was in existence... Police in Aberdeen still carried out regular patrols in the area, but they were focused on protecting prostitutes from violence rather than arresting them. In 2005, one of the ladies working in this protected zone was 21-year-old Susan Third. Susan was born on September 26th, 1983 in Aberdeen, and in February 2005 she was the mother of a five-year-old son who had just started school, Jamie. The father of her son was her childhood sweetheart, Mark. Susan was a lovely, warm and friendly girl but unfortunately she'd become addicted to heroin and resorted to prostitution to pay for her daily fix. Susan had been hooked on heroin since she was 17 and so that's why she had to spend her evenings working on the streets of Aberdeen. She'd asked to be put on methadone to wean her off heroin but the doctors had actually told her that she was too young. Susan was a bright girl and she fully understood the risks of her work and she also knew that she had to turn her life around for herself and also for her young son. She was due to start a drug rehabilitation programme in March 2005, and she'd also secured a place at Aberdeen College to study hairdressing, in the hope that she could make that fresh start for her and Jamie. Aberdeen can be bleak during the winter, but it was a particularly cold evening in February 2005, when season 3rd began preparing for the night shift, with the brisk wind whistling in from the sea. Let me tell you just how cold it was. If it was these conditions for a night out in Newcastle, maybe one or two of the thousands of men out for the night would not be in short sleeves. Yep, yeah, extreme weather. Pulling on her black knee-length boots, Susan made the finishing touches to her makeup with a sweep of dark mascara. While most of her friends set off for work in the bars and pubs in Aberdeen's Union Street, Susan ordered a taxi from her home in the east end of the city and headed for the docks. Susan stood on the pavements of the harbour with around 12 other women on that freezing night, trying to keep warm despite the biting wind. Shortly before midnight on the 26th of February, Susan spotted a red Nissan Primera slowly approach the kerb and looking inside she saw a young man Visibly upset, he was weeping into his hands. Susan cautiously climbed into the front seat of the car. The man was farm worker and father of two, Joseph Harrison, who poured out his life story and broke down in tears as he told Susan about an argument he'd just had with his mother. Susan then told him that she needed money and minutes later the pair were seen embracing and chatting happily on CCTV cameras as Harrison withdrew what appeared to be a large sum of money from a nearby cash machine. But it was when the couple returned to the car and Susan offered to have sex with Harrison that the mood suddenly changed. Apparently affronted by her offer of a sexual favour, he grabbed her by the throat and strangled her with a ligature that was in the car and she died on the streets of the harbour. When Susan was dead, he quickly bundled her lifeless body into his boot Harrison then deliberately drove his car at another woman on the city's castle terrace, forcing her to hide behind a parked car as she died for her life before swerving and driving out of Aberdeen. The farmhand drove 21 miles down the A90, even through a police roadblock prior to dumping Susan's half-naked body in a field at Denside of Catterley near Stonehaven. Disturbingly, Harrison had sex with Susan's corpse. Harrison quickly left the scene and drove around the local area disposing of Susan's clothing. At one stage he stopped to buy petrol and the cashier later noted that he seemed very calm, giving no indication of what he had just done. He then headed back to the family farm to conceal the body. Within hours Harrison was arrested. He left the partially clothed body next to his car before calling his pregnant girlfriend to confess what he had done telling her I've just killed somebody. At 8am, Susan's body was found by a member of the public. When questioned by police, Harrison immediately confessed to the killing, saying he'd just snapped. On the surface, it appeared that this was a spur of the moment attack, and Harrison told the police he just lost it when Susan offered him sex as they sat in the car. However, just hours before Susan was killed, Harrison left his girlfriend a note at his Breckin flat. It read So sorry, oh wish we lived far away from here. Please come and see me in jail as I love you and baby. Please forgive me and don't forget me. Joe. So rather than him actually just snapping as he told police, was he actually going out of the intention of murdering someone and Susan was just the unlucky person in the wrong place at the wrong time? Harrison said that this wasn't the case but he was not fully able to explain the note. In October 2005, Harrison stood trial at Aberdeen Crown Court. Now a father of three, he was originally charged with murder, but he admitted culpable homicide on the grounds of diminished responsibility. The High Court was told he suffered from either schizophrenia or drug-induced psychosis. Harrison talked about hearing alien voices and believed he was an observer on Earth. He was also said to have been a heavy user of amphetamines and ecstasy. Psychiatrists were asked to determine the nature of his illness and the part that illegal drugs may have played in his condition. After a lengthy legal wrangle over his mental state, the court decided that he should go to prison rather than be detained at the state hospital in Carstairs. For the family, it was a cruel turn of events, which served only to compound their misery. Not only they lost their beloved Susan, but the man responsible would not stand trial for murder. Sentencing Harrison to just six years in prison... OK, let's pause here. You did hear correctly. Six years in prison for the brutal murder of an innocent woman. Judge Lord Abernethy told Harrison, Nothing that I can do, of course, can bring Susan Third back to life. Her death is a tragedy for all concerned, particularly her family and friends and their sense of loss is a continuing one which I fully recognise. Susan's aunt, Sandra Third, who was now looking after Susan's son Jamie, shouted, I hope you die in jail, at Harrison, as he was led in way. A family spokesperson told how Susan's relatives felt they'd been let down by the justice system from beginning to end. If he's not mentally ill, then he should be in jail for murder, it's as simple as that, explained Alex Ross, Susan's uncle. We think this man is not insane, he's just evil, and he's played the system perfectly. A few months in Carstairs, followed by a very short prison term and he's back out on the streets. What kind of signal does that sentence send out to society? That it's okay to kill a prostitute because their life doesn't count? Harrison knew he could be facing a life sentence, so he claims he's hearing voices and pursues the insanity route. The family continued... Harrison's advocate described him as naive. He was not too naive to know where to pick up a working girl, brutally strangle her, conceal her body in the boot of his car and drive to a secluded location where he violated her dead body before leaving the scene of his awful crime. Susan's family were rightly appalled by the length of the sentence and they believed that she'd been failed by Scotland's justice system, seen as just another statistic, another dead prostitute who got what she deserved. Six years for killing someone, how can that be justice? Asked Sandra Third, Susan's aunt. A prostitute's life is so cheap, no one gives a damn, they just think she had it coming to her. We know that if she'd been a nice middle-class girl, well-educated, a policeman's daughter, Harrison would have been put away for life. Harrison didn't stand trial for murder because Susan was an addict and a prostitute. She was treated like a second-class citizen and there was no one to fight for her. Scottish prosecutors appealed the length of the sentence, but incredibly, this was rejected by the appeal judges. In 2009, Harrison was released just four years after the murder. Even worse is that he was actually released on the anniversary of her death. Susan's uncle, Alex, who is now the guardian of her son Jamie, said, This state could not have been worse. Her stunned family were so shocked by the move, They were unable to mark the anniversary themselves by laying flowers at her grave. Alex, who shares custody of Jamie with Susan's aunt Sandra, said the family were appalled to be told by the authorities that Harrison was actually being freed on the anniversary of her killing. He said, We obviously think he should have stayed in jail for a very long time. Even if he'd been released a week earlier or a week later, it would have been better. You can't help agreeing with him. What a decision. Alex added, On the anniversary, we normally go to the grave and put down flowers, but we couldn't face it. We just couldn't go knowing that Harrison was at home, walking free or in the pub having a pint. It's just wrong. Jamie, who's about to celebrate his 10th birthday, was also left devastated by the news. Alex said, Four years ago, on his birthday, was the formal identification of Susan's body. It's very hard for him he's lost a major part of his life. With Harrison walking free, the family have been left devastated and a little boy has been let down. Finally, five years later, in May 2014, Harrison was finally taken off the streets for life. He was ordered to be detained indefinitely after an incident where he pulled a knife with a four-inch blade from his pocket during an appointment with a consultant psychiatrist. He claimed he'd heard voices telling him he was being targeted by a hit squad who were looking to kill him. Today, thankfully, less sex workers are putting themselves at risk on the streets of Aberdeen, as the internet has led to more of the sex business moving inside relatively safer houses. However, in Aberdeen, today, the day you're listening to this podcast, in desperation, usually to feed drug addictions, women are still putting their lives on the line by working as sex workers, On the streets of the city. In a recent investigation, it was claimed that the deaths of Scottish prostitutes are not taken seriously because of prejudice and discrimination, as figures revealed that of 10 recent murders of prostitutes, only three had led to convictions. The murder rate for sex workers in Britain is 12 times higher than for other women, and prostitutes constitute the largest single group of unsolved murders. I think those statistics are just incredibly shocking, don't you? It is estimated that in the UK as a whole, at least 60 prostitutes have been murdered in the last 10 years, but with only 16 convictions. Ruth Morgan Thomas, project manager of Scott PEP, a charity for prostitutes in Edinburgh, believes that the women will continue to be failed by the legal system because they are not taken seriously by the police. She said, Some police officers see the violence as part of the job of a sex worker. No woman should have to accept that. When they report violence, the police are sometimes still dismissive and tell women they shouldn't be out on the streets. Sex workers are dehumanised by the media and the general public and there is still an underlying discrimination in the way they are treated. Susan Third's relatives called for legislation of both drugs and brothels. They believe that, had she been able to buy heroin within a controlled environment, she would not have needed to fund her drug use by selling her body. If prostitution was legalised, they believe she'd have been in a safe and regulated property without the need to walk the streets, with all its inherent dangers. In Aberdeen, even in 2017 and away from the streets, sex workers are still at significant risk. Many of you will recall the high-profile case just this year when a jury found 26-year-old university student, Bala Chinder, guilty of raping and strangling a 37-year-old mum, Jessica McGrath, in an Aberdeen flat she was using to sell sex. Jessica died in a horrendous way. She suffered blunt force injuries to her jaw, chest and chin and was left to die naked from the waist down in a Union Terrace apartment after an hour of repayment. Kallus Chinder then left, stealing Jessica's two mobile phones and destroying a SIM card from his own phone in a bill to cover up his crime. One positive note to this case, if there can be anything positive from such an evil crime, at least Chinder was jailed for life and ordered to serve at least 18 years in prison. Very different to the six years given to Harrison for the murder of Susan Third. What is less positive is the reporting of the case. In an article by The Vice, they go back to the time of Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper, his trial in 1981. Sir Michael Havers, then Attorney General of Britain, made a public statement about the nature of the Rippers' crimes. Specifically, he made some suggestions for people who were wondering how sad they should feel about the women Sutcliffe had murdered, many of whom were sex workers. Some victims were prostitutes, Havers said. But perhaps the saddest part of this case is that some were not. Let's say that again. Some victims were prostitutes, Haver said. But perhaps the saddest part of this case is that some were not. And have we made progress on this low point? Some of the headlines about Jessica's murder suggest not. The Metro. Mum's double life as prostitute exposed when she was found dead. Then our favourite, the Sun. £220 an hour vice girl found dead in Aberdeen was on a two-day sex tour. And the Daily Mail. Mother's secret life as a prostitute revealed after she was found murdered in a rented flat 600 miles from her home. And the Daily Record. Sex worker found dead in Aberdeen flat left young son at home as she went on a two-day trip as £220 an hour vice girl. Of course, the key part of the story is her murder, her brutal murder an innocent woman killed, not what she did for a living. The Vice article continues, The downgrading of victimhood for social undesirables is nothing new. Death, if you're a sex worker, a drug addict, or a suspected gang member, for instance, is, to be blunt, kind of your own fault. Certainly, the public isn't encouraged to look at you with quite as much sympathy As your innocent neighbour. Well, you're not exactly innocent, are you? As we have heard today, Susan Third was a lovely, warm, caring lady who met just the most horrific death for just asking a man parked in the red light district if he was there for sex. Although some workers do choose to work in the industry, those tend to be at the top level, which can offer the opportunity to make significant amounts of money. The statistics vary on what data you read, but it certainly appears that as much as over 90% of the workers at the bottom end of the sex industry, working on the streets, are there as it's the only way they can see that they're able to pay for their addiction to drugs. It's still a risky business, and recent crime history in the UK from Jack the Ripper to the Yorkshire Ripper and on to the modern day shows that way too many of these workers are still being murdered, or if not murdered, attacked. What can be done to make their working conditions safer? I don't know. But what I do know is that judges must throw the book at anyone found guilty of murdering a sex worker. We need to make sure that these workers are treated with the same respect as anyone else who's injured in the course of their work, which is a transaction for money, just like any other form of work. You can't help wondering just how the pathetic judge who gave Harrison the embarrassing six years for murder would feel if a member of his family suffered a violent death and the perpetrator was given such a laughable sentence. We think about Susan and what might have been. 12 years on from her murder, she'd have been, what, 33? She wanted to change her life around. She was starting college, she was starting rehab. What could she have been doing now? But as always, our final thoughts are with Susan's family, especially her younger siblings and young son Jamie. We've seen in the UK True Crime podcast on many occasions how badly younger family members can be affected by such horrendous crimes. In particular, the one that stays with me is in episode 20, A Deadly Obsession. We saw how Nikita Grender's brother was just so terribly affected by her murder, and he's now in a Young Offenders Institute himself. I guess we must just hope that Susan's family honour her memory by leading happy, fulfilled lives. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the UK True Crime weekly podcast. If you would like to support the show, please share this episode with friends and family or head to patreon.com forward slash UK I'm always delighted to hear from listeners to the show, so please do contact me on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. I look forward to speaking again next week, so until then, stay classy. Cheerio.